Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. When the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Thanks, Heather. Well, a very good morning to you all. This passage you probably won't Um, see in a nativity play at a school over the next um, few weeks, but it's packed with encouragements for us to learn from this morning. So let's pray as we, we open it up. Father, we thank you that salvation comes through this Lord Jesus Christ. And we do pray this morning as we look at this passage of Matthew 2, you would fill our hearts with a deep encouragement of how much you love us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few, a couple of years ago now, we went on a holiday to, a family holiday to France, and we were traveling quite um, far south into France, so we did a stopover um, in the middle somewhere, and uh, everything was generally, I felt, going quite well. Uh, we, we got in, the, the only hitch was Brexit had just been voted um, the week before, and so it became a little bit frosty uh, quite quickly, but the, the guy welcomed us in um, warmly enough, uh, and we slept well, and the next morning, I got a knock on the door uh, fairly, fairly early, uh, and he had um, two planks of wood, uh, one in each hand. My kids had just been sent out to play out the front in the garden, and they had these two planks of wood. And he looked at me and he said, I had a 500-year-old ancient wheel sitting platform in my, just in my garden, never touched, it's precious to the family for generations, and your kids have taken it apart. Uh, and so he came with two of the pieces of wood, uh, and he said to me, in the best English I've ever heard a Frenchman say, fix it, very clearly, fix it. So there, there, there we were, myself and Noah, who was only, I think, four at the time, armed with the only experience we'd had of building anything three to five-year-old Lego, but we felt fairly confident. And so we went out to try and fix this 500-year-old wheel. Well, to cut a very long story short, we, we did not fix that 500-year-old wheel. It was an absolute mess. And so we walked out, <laughs> drove out very quickly uh, with our heads, uh, very, very down uh, and sorrowfully, and another place ticked off our list for places the cons cannot visit again on holidays. <laughs> it's 
perhaps a question um, on our lips this week with the, the election looming. I actually um, had a dinner with a, a group um, in the church this week, and I said, oh, I, I asked, should I mention the election um, on Sunday? And they all groaned in unison. So I won't speak very much about the election, but it is coming um, uh, this Thursday. And perhaps a question on many minds, many lips, who can we choose to fix the messes around us? And I guess many of us aren't holding out much hope. Whatever happens post-Thursday, the broken things in our nation, they're not all going to be fixed. I doubt many people think that's going to happen. And even if those big national concerns, so Brexit, climate change, NHS, education, crime, even if they did improve, well, what about the other stuff? Our relationship hurts, our deep anxieties, our shames of past failures, disappointment of what we, perhaps our lives have become, our fears. Who's going to fix those? Well, our passage this morning in Matthew 2 is placed in a context of darkness and pain, but it provides us with great hope. You see, it's to teach us God's plan has always been to fix the problem of our broken world. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. You see, he would send his king. He was always going to send his king to rescue us. And it's weave. We've been looking through Matthew over the last couple of weeks. And weave through the 28 chapters of Matthew. We are presented with this king, this supreme king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the significant thing about the start of Matthew is that is that this king hasn't appeared from nowhere. It's what the whole Old Testament has been written about. The whole Old Testament sets the foundation for this king to fulfill. And we can't actually understand the Old Testament unless we know it's setting us up for what's to come in the new. The Old Testament scriptures are always pressing forward. They're drawing us in so that we call out for the conclusion of the story, the climax of the plot. That's why it's there. How is God going to fulfill his promises? And Matthew teaches us throughout his gospel, but especially at the beginning. So chapter two, chapter one, we have the family tree stretching back to Abraham, signaling God was working out his promises through the Old Testament generations right through. And then chapter 118 to the end of chapter 2, well, five times Matthew stops and he says, let me show you, let me show you in the Old Testament how it's pointing to the coming king. It is this child, Jesus, who will save their people, his people from their sins. He is the one who fulfills what was told long ago. See, the Old Testament, if we can think of it as footprints, it's giving us the footprints. When we will follow them, well, we'll see see where they head. And Matthew shows they are leading to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God has mercifully chosen to rescue his people from their sin and indeed from this broken world. And we have two sections in our passage this morning to see this, each with a context within which we have two Old Testament prophecies, two out of the five through the chapter, and they're pointing us 
to Jesus. And our first one, if you have a look with me, our first one is in these verses 13 to 15, where we can see, our first point, God's rescue brings us a new and ultimate freedom. God's rescue brings us a new and ultimate freedom. I don't know if you saw it on the news this week. Over the past three months, Poland have been shifting four billion pounds worth of their gold from the Bank of England back to their vaults in Warsaw. In stealth, it's been happening during the night. 8,000 bars weighing 100 tons have been quietly moved under high security police escort to secret locations for sorting. Well, in these verses, we have infinitely precious cargo that needs to be moved urgently in order to protect it. Joseph has been given this enormous responsibility to take care of this child. Joseph, you have bundled up in your arms a little one who God has tasked with the highest of ambitions to save the world. That's the baby in front of you. He is to save the world. Well, the Magi had completed their visit to Jesus. They had been warned in a dream not to return to Herod. You can read that at the end of the chapter. Joseph is given a very clear and urgent instruction. Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape. Escape to Egypt. Uh, The focus very much on God's protection of the child is unmistakable. God's got this. He's looking after him. So Herod is on the rampage. He's after blood. You need to save the child. And Joseph, while remarkably again, once, once again, he shows his wonderful example of faith. He does exactly what he told. I don't know if you noticed in the details. He doesn't ask questions. He gets up in the middle of the night. As soon as he hears it, he gets up and he takes his family to Egypt. Now, why Egypt? Well, Egypt provided safe haven. So it's about 90, 90 miles southwest of Judea and outside of Herod's jurisdiction. It was a natural place for many Jews uh, to seek asylum. But the primary way to answer that question, why Egypt? Why was Jesus to go to Egypt? Is because, we see it in the passage, when Herod would die, well, Jesus would then have to leave again, and we've got this prophecy, out of Egypt, I called my son. You see, again, we see these Old Testament footprints. We see where they're heading. God had it planned out to reveal Jesus would save. The reference, it's from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, it's in reference to Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. The Old Testament prophet, looking back to where God rescued his people, the big, big event in Israel's history, where they're in desperate darkness, slavery, in Egypt. And God, well, he loved them as his children. He heard their cries. He knew their pain. Israel, the beloved son. And he frees them. He rescues them. Yet, despite this, well, Israel threw it all back in God's face. They they rebelled. The Old Testament history tells us they rebelled. They bowed and they give devotion to anyone and everyone else. They bowed down to false gods who, in contrast to the Lord, had done nothing for them. 
And yet, even though they did this, well, you can read of God's response in Hosea Hosea chapter 11, verse 8. It's remarkable. Let me read it for you. My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, for I am God and not man. Well, it's a remarkable response to being so wronged. God does not not lash out in temper. Well, the Israelites, they behave despicably, yet it arouses God's compassion. And the whole point of God rescuing Israel from Egypt, this is what we have in Matthew, the whole point of that story was to provide another clue, another sign pointing to this ultimate measure of compassion that was to come. He would send the eternal son, the one who had no record of rebellion, only devotion to his father, the one who made the whole universe, the sun, the stars, the galaxies, the one who made it would become a baby and he'd be hunted down. As soon as he arrived, he'd be hunted down. And so we see this defenseless baby humbly having to rely on an obedient Jewish carpenter to keep him out of harm's way. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Supreme and eternal salvation has arrived in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Israel had once been saved from the bondage of Egyptian slavery, well, this Jesus would save his people from their sin. That's what we find out in chapter one. Humility, sacrifice, love, commitment. Well, we have it all to celebrate because of him. This is who the whole story of the Exodus was about. And every time Israel remembered it through the Old Testament, every time they look back to this huge event in their history, well, they were to look forwards towards the direction the sign pointed to, to the Messiah who would offer eternal salvation. And just in terms of what this means for our lives, for application, well, have you comprehended how compassionate this God is to you? The weight of grief we have given him through history, rejection after rejection, we do it still. Yet his response, love, rescue. God's rescue brings us a new and ultimate freedom. The Israelites quickly turned to grumbling and complaining. As soon as they were set free from from, uh, Egypt, they very quickly turned to grumbling, complaining in their freedom. Why did they do that? Well, very simply, because they had too easily forgotten who the Lord is and what he had done for them. Well, in Christ, the Christian has been given this superior, eternal freedom from slavery to sin. God's rescue brings you a new freedom, an ultimate freedom, and we aren't to forget it easily. We aren't to forget it at all. Yet we can be so quick to grumble. We can so easily get angry. What are we to do? Well, we are to remember the magnitude of your exodus. 
your exodus from sin through Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul can say so confidently, confidently, he's in prison when he says it. He's a deep suffering. What does he say? Rejoice in the Lord always. He knows how much the Lord loves him. So can I encourage you this morning? Consider the true worth of this Jesus for every single car service. If you go to all eight um, over the next couple of weekends, consider the true worth of this king, what he has brought us. The whole of the Old Testament from beginning to end points to him. He is the only answer to the bondage of sin. God's rescue brings us freedom. And as we move into our second section, in verses 16 to 18 now, we find, second point, God's rescue, God's rescue cannot be stopped. You see, we find another king, don't we, in this passage, one with very different ambitions. He is concerned not for the welfare of his people, but with his own status and his own glory. He's desperate to hold a firm grip on his power. So any news about a newborn king of the Jews, well, that's only going to bring him fear and insecurity to such a man. Joseph has been told in chapter one, he's a, this Jesus is a savior. The Magi worship him as king, but Herod only sees him as a problem to get rid of, to be dealt with. And we get a glimpse into Herod's sordid world. He's got lust for power, insecurity that breeds treachery. The Magi haven't returned, and so Herod's response is outrageous and uncontrollable fury. And he commands the unthinkable, the destruction of doting new families, newborns, up to two. Doting new families, and he wants to rip them apart. He cares nothing for them. As every little boy is murdered, Herod, he has previous with this when it comes to this treachery. History reading tells us his wife's, he killed his wife's brother, drowned in the palace swimming pool. He put to death 46 members of the Jewish ruling council. He killed his mother-in-law, his wife, and two of their sons, fearing that they might take his throne. And on his deathbed, believe it or not, he was so hated, he knew he was so hated by his people uh, that he actually ordered the rounding up of anyone and everyone that was notable in the city of Jerusalem, and he rounded them up to be slaughtered as soon as his own death was announced, simply to ensure deep and genuine mourning in the city. That's the sort of man we've got here, a wretched context in which we find our second Old Testament passage in verse 18. But this again is our footprint, our Old Testament footprint from the prophet Jeremiah showing who this Jesus is, what he'd come to do. So we find it in Jeremiah 31, 15. I'm gonna let you do a little bit of work now. If you can turn to that, that would be useful for me. So it's on page 792, I hope, if you've got the same Bible as me. Um, 792, and we'll look at Jeremiah 31, verse 15. I'll read this verse. It's the same verse as in Matthew, but then we'll keep it open for, for a couple of moments. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are 
no more. You see, this passage speaks of the time when Israel are taken into exile. And the voice of Rachel from long ago, she is the idolized, sorrowful mother of the Jews. And her voice is heard down through the centuries, weeping for her children as they're taken into bondage, far away from the land that God gave to them. God had provided them with so much that was good. And she weeps now as they had to leave it and they're taken into exile. And this weeping, we find in Matthew, would point to what would happen in Bethlehem years later. The massacre of innocents, as it's well known, as children, these children are murdered by the beastly Herod. But Jeremiah 31, it isn't a chapter of doom. And rather, it is filled with hope. It's got future restoration, despite the tears, despite the enemies around, despite the rebellion of the people's own sinful hearts, where the Lord still chose to save. Read with me verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. You see, the Lord wouldn't leave his people in exile. He wouldn't forget them. That's not who he is. They will return to the land as a sign of the bigger picture to come. The Messiah will arrive, and when he does, he will usher in a new way, a new kingdom that will be so much better than anything before. And where we sit now, and we're not there yet, we are not at the full, delightful kingdom that he will come in, he will come back, and that's when he will restore it in its full. But the passage here in Matthew, he is this king, he will come back and usher in this new kingdom, one without death, you can read this in Revelation 21, one without death, or mourning, or crying, no more pain, and you could go endless implications to this, no more divorce, or kids getting ill, or feeling trapped at work, unable to escape, or depression, and this is what Matthew shows us. This young king, when he comes on the scene, it's big news, fireworks, as he ushers in the new kingdom. Later in the same chapter of Jeremiah, you don't need to look it up, but later in the same chapter, we're given this wonderful promise. Perhaps many of you will know this. Jeremiah 31, 33, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember and will remember their sins no more. See, Matthew teaches us it was promised long ago. The Old Testament tells us God will remember our sins no more. God will remember your sins no more. And the life and action of this child was how this was, was to happen. This Jesus, well, he would, of course, be wickedly killed, but not yet only at the right time, only when God allowed it, not to appease the insecurities of a despot king, but with the purpose of bringing peace 
to those who would join with the Magi and bow down and worship the Lord Jesus Christ as their wonderful, humble, sacrificial, salvation-bringing king. And so whatever you put on your Christmas list this month, well, you won't ask for anything greater than what the Lord Jesus has already provided. Peace with God and enjoyment of him forever. Well, there's so much to thank him for. What a wonderful thing. Over the next couple of weeks, why don't we, through Advent, each morning, make it a priority. Wake up, pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have brought me peace. And just as we close, a few more points of application. Well, as we read these prophecies, where they should show us the Lord Jesus Christ is everything. He is exactly who Israel should have been waiting for. And he is the one that everyone needs. Can God rescue us from the brokenness of this world? From the brokenness of our own lives that so many of us know too deeply? Well, right from the beginning, the whole of the Old Testament points to him. And Matthew shows forgiveness, salvation, freedom, peace, joy, security, comfort, rest. It's all there. It's all there to be offered through the life and work of this King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're wrestling with the idea that you're too far gone. Your sin is too great. Your brokenness too real. Well, you cannot be. You cannot be too far gone for this King. Your sin is real, yes, but it's not too great for this king. See God's authority over the whole of human history. Did you notice it in the passage, Herod? He had no chance of stopping it. Verse 15, what happens to Herod? He dies. No one can thwart God's plan to save. See, God's rescue plan cannot be stopped. And we are to believe that and trust him and worship him. Nothing can stop this relentless love for us. He's determined to save. Nothing and no one can stand in his way. Do you believe that when you're faced with the temptation to walk away, as some of you may be even this morning, or perhaps as we come to considering who to invite over the next couple of weekends, might we consider some beyond saving, too difficult to save. Not so for this king. And for those grateful for Jesus but feeling hard up against it, I'm sure there are many in the room. Colleagues giving you a, a hard time, a relationship breakup, battling an addiction, perhaps. Well, commit your struggles in confidence to a Lord who is over every single detail of Old Testament fulfillment. He is the Lord who is over every detail of your life. And he cares more than you could imagine anyone caring for you. Well, there we have it. It's a wonderful passage. Just as we close, I just want to draw out a comparison between this wicked, I don't really want to give him more airtime, but just a comparison between this wicked Herod and the true King Jesus of Matthew's Gospel. One king killed because of evil, 
in fear and insecurity, one king was killed to defeat evil. No more fear, no more insecurity. One king hates, one king loves. One king deceives, one king stands for truth. One king brings tyranny, one king brings peace. One king lusts for power, one king humbly descends from the heavens to become a child needing to be protected. One king brings doom. One king brings hope. And in Matthew 2, in this short line in verse 15, until the death of Herod, one king dies and fades into insignificance. One king is protected by his father, God Almighty, and is praised for all eternity. Well, let's pray to him now. In the midst of the context of our struggles, our pain, I'm very aware, Father, that none of us will have delightful, joyful, all-going-well lives. Some of us this morning will be in deep pain and anguish. And I pray for each and every one that we would know you to be the sovereign, supreme God over all history that points everything pointing to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I pray for each of us that we would know you as our salvation and that we would rejoice in you always and be glad by the great sacrificial work that you've given to us. Comfort, encourage us this Christmas in Jesus' name. Amen.